Awesome. How are you guys doing today? Awesome. We are in a new series, and we are going to be studying for the next six weeks the book of Revelation. If you do not have a Bible, this is going to be a very important series that you have one. So uh, the ladies are going to come down. They're going to have Bibles in their hands. Raise up your hand if you need one. And if you already got one, make sure to start bringing it because this is going to be very, very important. Uh, once you get it, go to Revelation chapter 1, and uh, that's where we're going to start. Revelation chapter 1, 1, 2, 8. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. If you have your hand up, you did not get a Bible, probably means we ran out. Sorry about that. We'll get you one. Okay. Revelation 1, 1 to 8. Uh, this is what it says. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Verse four, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and even those who pierce them and what tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Verse eight, I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. Now, you are probably asking a bajillion questions as to why we would even do this. I've talked to a lot of youth pastors, talked to a lot of different people in the church, and they're going, a youth group's going to do Revelation? Oh my, are you guys psychos? And we're like, yes, we are. But the reason why is because I don't think for us, we could actually feel great about ourselves if we left you as maybe, maybe you're older, you're in the grade 11, grade 12 years, you're gonna go on to university, and you are going to live your life afraid of a book of the Bible. That doesn't really make sense. This is wonky. What's going to be in here is going to trip you out. It's going to challenge. It's going to flex. It's going to grow a lot of your understandings of what you believe the Bible is actually saying. It's going to be crazy. I'm not going to lie to you. This is going to be some tough things. And some of this is going to be the greatest news that you've ever heard in your entire life. Most that I want you to get away from these times that we are in this book is to see what I have seen. To me, I cherish this book more than any other. It's the one book where I look at and I read all of what it's saying and immediately it just draws me to worship. I hope it does the same for you. I hope as you go through this, as you experience it, as you go through the readings that we post on the gram all throughout this whole thing, that it would do the same thing. Today is gonna to be technical. Today we are going to brush a lot of things. You are going to learn. This is less of kind of a sermon and more of like a Bible download. I hope you understand that. So if you are new, this is your first time, 
All right, you guys picked a good one. It's, uh, it's gonna be great. So let's pray and uh, we can get started. Father, we thank you as we approach uh, this book of yours that you would just change our hearts, that you would grow us, you would develop us in a profound way as we just go headfirst into this, that you uh, use my words to shape the students and the leaders and myself as we go through this together. And we just grow as a community who's committed to learning, who's committed to one another, it's committed to being here and sharing experiences that you would just do much with us for your name and your kingdom here in this beautiful city. So Father, we thank you, we love you, just wanna pray, amen. One of the things I love about uh, movies, right? I love going to the movies. Movies are awesome. I remember going to Inception in theaters. Inception was baller, right? That movie was legit. You go in there and you're watching this whole thing go down and it's tripping up your mind and you're like, what even is life? Like, is my foot real? Like, that's how you're coming out of the movie. You're like, what's happening right now? And one of my favorite things about movies isn't even watching the movie. One of the fa my favorite things about going to the movies is after the movie because you can just walk up to random strangers and go, what happened? And they'll go, bro, I don't know, man. I don't know what happened. I felt for the last like hour and a half, I was on some stuff. I don't know what happened. And then we're having a conversation. And it's this beautiful thing because we kind of shared this experience. And this experience actually connects us in a deep way because we both fully understand this thing. Look at how it connects them and myself, this, this, this shared thing that we have together. Experiences, maybe it's present. Memories do the exact same thing. A couple months ago, I shared with you guys about how a friend of mine from high school uh, passed away. And it was a really weird thing in my mind. A couple weeks later, I remember I was leaving church on a Sunday and I saw her dad walk into the building. And I looked at him, he looked at me. I just went over and I gave him a hug and then he just started crying. And he was just crying and crying. And then he just wanted to start telling me about what has happened and the process and all of these different things. And, and it was another one of those experiences. It wasn't a positive, happy thing. But we talked about these memories. We asked questions. We would say all these different things. And it just, the intimacy between him and I just, just deepened. It's like almost as if this thing that only him and I knew about and everybody around us could just kind of walk by and they would have no idea. That's this book. That's all of what this is. There's a guy named John. He's on this island. He's writing to these seven churches, which to him is, is family. And he writes in such a way that only they will understand. That's why it looks so confusing on the outside. There's dragons there's dudes with swords coming out of their mouth. There's flying serpents. There's angels everywhere. And you're like, this is like straight up Bible on acid. This is what this is like. But all of this has a point. All of this has a meaning. All of this is intended to do something for us. It's supposed to push you into understanding things that you have ever known. The book of Revelation, I know you guys love this, is the exam at the end of the book. This is basically saying you will understand and unlock this book if you understand the 65 books that came before it. If you understand those 65 books and all of the different illusions or the numbers or the quotations, Revelation will come to you naturally. 
Not that you know that every single thing has a meaning that you know, but the overall meaning of what it's trying to say is going to hit you in the face and it's going to be an amazing time. And it, trust me, it will. Even the very name Revelation should tell you something about this book. It says it right from the beginning. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The first couple words there, the revelation. What the heck is a revelation? The word revelation comes from this word uh, apocalypsis, right? Where you would possibly think apocalypse. You're going apocalypse. If I said there is going to be an apocalypse, you would go do we have uh, safety procedures? We should probably figure this out, right? I'm not about apocalyptic life. We think of catastrophe or disaster or a big problem or issues about to come in that's gonna be very traumatic and problematic. That's not what apocalyptic means, nor is that what apocalypse means. Apocalypse is simply just an unveiling. It's a revealing of something that you didn't previously know. It's when that, it's that aha moment in your mind. That's a revelation. That is an apocalypse. One day, I remember I was getting on an airplane and I was going down from Vancouver to LA and uh, I got the window seat. The window seat's the greatest thing in the entire world, right? Because you just start staring at stuff and you're like, whoa, the whole time. It's legit. Um, and so I remember being on this, this plane and I, we were just kind of flying. We're flying and I'm looking at the window. I'm just looking at clouds. And I'm looking at these clouds and I'm like, Phew. Man, clouds are crazy, you know? It's just like these fluffy things in the sky. What even is a cloud? A cloud's, a clouds, water, water. It's clouds, clouds, water. Clouds, water. The ocean's water. The clouds like an ocean. It's like an ocean in the sky. Wait, the water. The water has sharks. There has to be sky sharks. What is happening? There must, an eagle is kind of like a sky shark. And my mind just was blown by me sitting in this moment going, an eagle is nothing but a sky shark, right? And I'm sitting there going, this is unreal. This is that moment right there. And all of its beauty is an apocalypse. It's a revelation. Now, what's important for us to understand is what is that apocalypse about? This whole book is the revelation to John about Jesus Christ. That's what the book is called. It's about Jesus. It's for Jesus. It's to Jesus. Everything about this book is about Jesus. It's not about anything else. It's just about who Jesus is. And we have to understand what that's going to do. If it's about Jesus, it's unveiling something about him. And it's going to do this in pretty crazy ways. One of the ways about this book it's going to bring up is uh, it's an apocalyptic genre, which means it's highly, uh, I don't know, it's, it's lots of imagery. It's very poetic. It's kind of just like reading, like I said, a book that's on acid. It's kind of craziness, but it all has a point. Let me give you a quick example. Uh, this is probably one of the big highlight moments that we all want to figure out. This number in the book of Revelation Six, six, six. Oh, yeah, we're talking about it. Yeah, six, six, six. What the heck is that? Right? You read modern interpretations of this number, you go, bro, don't you know, man? Walmart's putting microchips in all of us, dude. That's six, six, six. And we're like, you're on drugs, right? So that's how we kind of approach that uh, in modern church. 
No, 666 is telling you something about what the Bible is trying to do. Um, if I were to write a text to one of you guys randomly, right? And I really wanted to be emphatic about something. I wanted to emphasize something. I'm going to Playland. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark. If you do two exclamation marks, you should repent. You do always do the third. Third exclamation mark, fire emoji, fire emoji, fire emoji, right? That's how you send a text when you wanna emphasize something. Or if you're doing it on a paper, you might bolden something or italicize something or just go straight fire all caps, right? That's how you emphasize something in our modern English. Back in the day, they did not do that. They did this thing called uh, Semitic triplets. What that, mean, what that means is the highest emphasis of something is something that's repeated three times. So we kind of have something similar. So high, higher, highest. The third one is the most complete version of that thing. That's what they had too. So as examples, when Jesus would go to someone, he would say, Martha, Martha. He's emphasizing something twice. It's, it's pretty emphatic, but not the most emphatic. You go three times, it's the most of that very thing. Here are a couple of examples. Uh, Isaiah uh, chapter six, verse three. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That is the most high or most complete version of holiness. Ezekiel 21, 27, a ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. Jeremiah 22, 29, oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. When you repeat something three times, it's the most of that thing. So now we got this number. We got what? Six, six, six. So what's the question? You got to figure out what six means. What the heck does six mean? Well, the Bible is going to tell us. Go to Revelation chapter 13. Uh, if you don't got it, that's okay. Let me read it for you. Revelation chapter 13, uh, verse 16. This is what it says. Also... It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand, this is emphasis, right hand and the forehead, the right hand and the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of what? A man, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So the Bible clearly tells us what does that number mean? It is the number of men. Why is it the number of men? Because men were created on the sixth day. The sixth. Man represents six. And what's the most representative thing about man in the Bible? We suck. We fail a lot. So what is this 666? It's this rebellion. It's this pushback against God. This has kind of been the main thing about what men have done. So if, if six just kind of means the number of man and rebellion and failure, what is six? Six, six. It's the utmost of that number. It's the most rebellion. It's the most pushback against God. That is why this number has such bad and evil connotations to it. 
But it's interesting. It says that this number should be written on the hand and on the forehead. That's kind of weird, right? Imagine if you just had a tattoo, like 666, and on your forehead, it's just like, what's up? Or like, whatever, it's just chilling there. That seems a bit uncomfortable. Why would they put a number on your forehead? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense until you begin to understand, and this is what I'm trying to teach you, why the book is written in this way. Why would it say that? Why would it tell you to write it on your hand and on your forehead? The reason why is because there was something else that was intended to be written on your hand and on your forehead. This is found in the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy makes it very clear that there is something to be written on your head and on your hand. What is that thing? I will tell you once I find it. The book of Deuteronomy is currently evading my hands and it will soon come into my, there we go. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four to nine. This is what it says. Verse six, four to nine. Oh my goodness. This is what it says. Verse, uh, verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, and with all your might. It's a very famous passage. To Jews currently, this is what, when they wake up in the morning, they pray this. Verse four, they pray it every single morning and every single night. This is the, this is the law to them. This is their favorite Bible passage. This is their John 3.16, okay? This is Deuteronomy 6.4. This is their thing, Okay. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is the command. Verse six, and these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Verse eight, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. What does this say? What's the thing that should be written on your hand and on your forehead? God's law should be. God's word should be. And what does Revelation say? How often do we write on our hands, on our foreheads, something completely different? It has nothing to do with the numbers. It has everything to do with your allegiance. Why your hand? Why your forehead? Because it definitely represents everything that you do and everything you believe. To write it on your hands is to represent everything that you do. To put it on your forehead is to represent everything that you think or believe about something. Do you believe that rejection of God is the true way, 666? Or do you believe that allegiance to Christ, to God, to Jesus is the correct way? What are you going to write on your hands? What are you going to write on your forehead? That's the true question. And now we begin to pick up why these things are coming out this way. It is telling us something completely different from we may expect just because it says it. In a very interesting way, we just have to take the time to really pay attention. This is uh, what one guy says about all this imagery or whatever about the book of Revelation. His name is Eugene Boring, which is kind of funny. Anyways, uh, this is what it says. Revelation's images are not merely illustrations of something that can be said more directly. A picture makes its own statements 
It is its own text. It does not communicate what it has to say by being reduced to just simple language. Just as is the case in visiting an art gallery, while commentary and explanation may help once to kind of get the picture, language about the picture can never replace the message communicated in and through the picture itself. It would be a violation of Revelation's mode of communication to attempt to summarize its message in a manner that would make the image itself unnecessary. He's basically trying to say if we try to just riddle all of these images down to its summary, it would kind of defeat the purpose of why the book was written, why it was written. It makes no sense. Another thing that you're going to see in this book as we go through is not only images, uh, which are kind of like this hand and this forehead. Once again, the numbers are all important. So we figured out what six meant, right? Six is the number of men. Twelve and all of its multiples, like 144,000, which is what we're going to find, are all a representation or a symbol of the people of God. How many disciples were there? Twelve. How many tribes were there? Twelve. This is a representative of the people of God. Six is humanity and rebellion. Ten is a complete amount of time. Seven represents perfection and completion. There's seven letters, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven spirits, seven bowls, seven churches. Are we actually talking to seven churches? Or is seven just the number of the complete number of churches? Is it all of the churches? Interesting. It makes you kind of think for a second. Four is the world's completeness. Why is seven perfection? Because creation was finished in seven days. Why is four completion about the world? Because the world was completed in four days. There are four corners, four winds, and four parts. And seven and four go together in very interesting ways. Uh, there are four series of seven judgments. Names of gods are used four or seven times. Seven spirits are mentioned four times. Jesus referred to the Lamb of God 28 times, which is seven times four, and is mentioned as the Lamb of God next to God seven times. Now, all of you just went... I don't know what just happened to me. Is my foot real, right? It's the inception thing all over. You see, I just tied it together. Okay, that's what's going on. You have to understand, you go, okay, aren't you going kind of a bit overboard with this? That's, that's kind of crazy. Like that's too intense and too narrow and whatever. But as we go through the book, you're gonna see it's gonna keep happening over and over and over and over again. That makes you believe, man, this is so intentional. Everything this is trying to say is trying to communicate something to me. All I have to do is try to pay attention. It's the beauty of it. It doesn't give it to you outright. You have to work for its message. And that's the most beautiful thing. It continues to tell us in Revelation chapter one that this was given to a guy, a dude, his name is John. Uh, people fight about which John this is. It's kind of like saying Bob wrote this. How many Bobs there are? Like Johns, there was a lot of Johns. But we believe that John is the same one who was a disciple of Jesus. He was the gospel writer. He wrote first and second and third John. And, and he is the dude who got this revelation. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. John's chilling on this island. And what we have to be clear about is that this book is written from the persecuted church to the persecuted church. If you are a Christian at this time in Rome, they are using you as lamps. If you are a Christian at this point in time, the Roman Empire is going to grab you, take you to dinner, 
put you on a stick and use you as a lamp. This is not a good time to be a Christian. This is not a good time for you to go, I love Jesus, and yet people are doing it more often than not. So you need something to encourage you, to keep you going, to make you still be committed. And that's why this was written to those kinds of individuals. Like you see how much power and how potent this thing could really be if we, if we crack what it's trying to say. Man, we think we have issues. We go to school, we say we're a Christian, we get made fun of. We are not made into lamps. People are not setting us ablaze for dinner lights. And yet all John is trying to do is encourage the very people he loves with everything he has. And this is what he did to do it. That's why this is so beautiful to us. This is why this should make you sit back in awe and go, there is nothing more than I want to just know what this says. It's what kept them going. It's the same thing for you. What you are going through, what's happening in your life, you can push through. If you figure out the message of this very book, you'll be revealed something. Something will be unveiled to you right in front of your eyes. That's why this is so beautiful. It's a story of a small group of individuals committed to Jesus in this kind of unorthodox rebellion. That's what John's trying to put in place. To be honest, I look at the book of Revelation and this is so nerdy. Just think of Star Wars, you know? It's this small community that's so committed to their values, but they are, they're the underdog against the big, big bad, evil empire, but they're going to push back. They're going to rebel. They're going to fight. I remember one time in high school, uh, we were in, this is 100% true, I'm not lying to you, we were in history class, okay? History class is boring as spit, is the worst thing in the entire world. And I'm sitting there in history, and I had a teacher, and this teacher had a thing about bathrooms. He just didn't want to let people urinate. I don't know why, it just wasn't his thing. So, I remember my friend Intaz going up to Mr. Amorelli and he said, Mr. Amorelli, I need to go to the bathroom. Mr. Amorelli said, no, you can't go to the bathroom. And then Intaz said, but I need to pee. And he said, no, you don't. And he goes, no, I do. I don't understand. He goes, sit down at your desk. Now, if you don't know Intaz really well, he is, uh, in his definition, the perfect, he's just hectic. Right? That's kind of how we would describe Intaz. He is just very, goes off the cuff of life. So Intaz proceeds to sit down at the desk, and we're all like, yo, you just got wrecked, right? And uh, you can't even pee. <laughs> so he sits down, and uh, Intaz uh, has a bottle on his desk. And uh, so he goes, proceeds to open uh, this uh, empty bottle, and uh, in the middle of class, just handles his stuff in the class, history class, starts peeing in this bottle. And uh, as, he's, as he's peeing in the bottle, 
uh, he just, he filled that sucker up. So he, he actually had to go. Uh, he closes the lid, stands up, walks towards Mr. Amarelli's desk. <laughs> Told you I had to go. And all of me and my friends were like an NBA bench after a dunk. What? No! He peed in the bottle and put it on the desk, right? We're all like, we're so hype at this moment. Like, this is rebellion, right? This is the man, and that is pee in a bottle. Like, this is craziness. It's the ultimate pushback. It was awesome, right? It's rebellion. This is pushback. And there's two kinds of rebellion, which is very important for us to understand. There is the rebellion that marks us. It's that kind of a story. There's one rebelling in this kind of rude way towards something else. There are two kinds of rebellion. We've already actually talked about them. You rebel against a legion to the beast or the empire, as we will find out, or you rebel against the lamb. That's the choice this book offers you. Which rebellion do you fall under? Who are you trying to shove away? And who do you actually find allegiance to? What are you writing on your hand? What will you write on your forehead? This is the question this is going to reinforce and ask you over and over and over and over again. Let us continue. Verse four, John to the seven churches. We talked about that or the complete number of churches, all of the churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come. It's beautiful. Jesus has come, he is with us now, and he is going to come again. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, look at how quickly you've already began to pick things up. We hope this is going to continue. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and to the ruler of kings on earth. We have one more thing to kind of talk about. This revelation is kind of like a dream. It's basically Jesus putting John into this dreamlike state where he is going to show him almost like an animated film of what Jesus wants to show him. It's very important for us to understand what's going to happen in this is some of the characters who play certain roles are going to change outfits. Jesus is represented as a lampstand. He's also represented as a lamb. He's also the rider on the white horse. He is also a baby at one point. All of these images are trying to represent the same person. Multiple individuals are going to kind of change costumes in, in kind of a way. If anybody's been a part of theater, you know that this is a reality. Uh, when I was in the sixth grade, um, I had the honor and the privilege because of my dramatic-ness uh, uh, to play Santa Claus in uh, my elementary school Christmas production of uh, Santa Claus. So I was Santa Claus, and uh, I remember I was outside of the line, and uh, there, was this, there was this kid, he was an elf. Uh, his name is Jay Preet. Oh, Jay Preet was annoying, right? So Jay Preet's just going in my ears. You're fat, you're Santa, your beard sucks. And I'm like, dude, Jay Preet, like literally, I gotta get in the zone. Like this is like some Emmy performance going on right now. I gotta kill it, stop talking to me. I'm in the zone. And he just keeps going, 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 going. And I'm like, Jay Preet, you need to stop. Seriously, 
I'm going to end you. And he just keeps going, 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 going. So uh, Santa Claus did what Santa Claus always does and proceeded to punch Jay Preet square in the stomach. And I thought to myself, this is right before my big performance. This is not a good thing. So I did what any other Santa Claus would do. And I ran on the stage in the middle of the kindergarten choir. And I began to turn the sack around and no one thought any different. It's a Christmas production. Santa Claus just showed up. This is legit, right? And uh, that's kind of the whole thing. Here I am dressed up as one character, Santa Claus. I'll eat your cookies and give you gifts. And on the other side, I'll punch you in the stomach or whatever. Uh, you're playing kind of separate roles, but technically you're still the same individual. That's what Revelation is going to do over and over and over again. You are the same person, but you are going to be dressed up in a bunch of different ways. And we have to understand that. The timeline is not the same timeline. We're going to think this is chronological. It's not chronological. It's going to go through this book. And the question you have to ask yourself is not, I'm running out of time. This is why I'm running so fast. Uh, this is not about uh, what happens next. This is not chronological at all. It's going to trip you out. It's just moving different timelines around everywhere. The theological center of the book is found in uh, chapter 12. And in chapter 12, it's talking about how the serpent came and tried to destroy a woman who was having a baby. And you're going, the serpent is trying to destroy a woman who is about to have a baby. When did that ever happen? And then you're saying to yourself, if this is what happens next, that makes no sense because this, this kind of sounds like Christmas. That's exactly what it is. Right in the middle of the book, there is this explanation of Christmas. This is not what happens in what order. It's not about what happens next. It's about what John sees next. It's very important for us to understand as we go through Okay, last thing uh, we are going to talk about is the last verse, uh, verse 8. Revelation 1, verse 8, it says these very familiar words for us. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That is going to work as kind of a bookend. That Language is going to be at the beginning and is going to be at the end of the book, the Alpha and the Omega. The next place you are going to find it is in chapter 22, the last chapter of the book, verse 13. It's going to say this. Behold, I am coming soon and bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Verse 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus, at the beginning and at the end of the book, explains himself as the Alpha and the Omega. In the Greek alphabet, the Alpha is the first letter and the Omega is the last. And then he says, I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning and the end. Now this is where it gets a bit nerdy, but stick with me. This whole thing is written in Greek, right? So if you are a Greek reader, you know exactly what he's saying. When he says, you, I am the first, he's using this word, arche, which we would currently use in our word, archetype. An archetype is the first of something that is going to be replicated. It is where you envision or what you look at to model it. In essence, 
arche, or the first of something, is also somewhat the source. It's where you get the idea from. It's where you replicate or model something from. That's arche. I am the first. I'm the source. And then he uses this other word. I am the last. And the last is this word in Greek called telos. Telos is not only the last, it's, it's the intended goal or the destiny of something. So Jesus makes it very clear at the beginning and at the end that what he wants you to know is I'm the beginning and I'm the end. I'm the source of all creation and I am its destiny. That right there is over the next six weeks what I want you to understand. I want you to see Jesus differently. I want you to look at him in a completely different way. And that's what we hope this does. So let's pray and uh, let's go back into a time of worship. Father, we thank you that as we have just blazed through a lot of information, that you would use us as leaders and as band members to be the kinds of individuals who would just dig into this ourselves, that we would allow ourselves to learn, that we would share and grow with the people around us, that we would commit to being here for the rest of the series to really grow deeper in what it is that you are calling us to do, Father. This is just the beginning of a long journey for us. And we pray and we hope that you would do something great in our hearts. So Father, we thank you. We love you. Just wanna pray. Amen.